Good morning, Woods Edge. I hope you're having a good summer. This morning, I want to introduce our guest speaker, Michael DiStefano. Michael is from the Houston area. He is a graduate of Texas A&M, and I know a lot of you are really like that. He was the young adults pastor at Faith Bridge Church, which is down in Spring, Texas, great church. And currently, he is a graduate student at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. Would you please give a warm welcome to Mike DiStefano. All right. Well, how's it going? Good to see you guys. Uh, it's an honor for me to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, just by way of a quick introduction, my name is Mike DiStefano. Uh, I was on staff at a church just down the road for about three years in Spring, Texas. And in my time there, uh, I got really close, formed some good friendships with some folks from Woods Edge and some really significant partnerships in ministry uh, here. And so this church feels a little bit like family. I was so warmly received this morning and prayed over and uh, it's just, it's an honor to be here with you guys. And so uh, thanks for letting me come and be a part of this family moment. Uh, with that, let me just tell you what we're going to do this morning. We're going to read some scripture, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in to hear from uh, the Lord. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start reading in verse 25. I believe the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and track along, though. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the nations seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you so much for an opportunity for us to gather as friends, as family, as the people of God, uh, as people who are here with friends and family seeking God, uh, and for all of us who are represented in this room um, underneath um, your authority, your leadership, your guidance this morning. And so, Father, I just pray that this opportunity for us, this time, would be about more than just hearing a message from a guy up front and listening to some music. I pray rather, God, that this would be a time for us to, to intersect with the king of the universe, uh, that we would look and behold a king, the king of righteousness, and that the effect of righteousness would be peace, and the result of righteousness would be quietness and trust forever. And so, God, we're asking for big things this morning. We're asking to see you. We're asking to interact with you. We're asking you uh, to change some things in us. God, for the hard hearts in the room, I pray you'd break them. God, for the broken hearts in the room, I, I pray that you would come and, and be comfort uh, and love and peace. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we're looking forward to what you have for us. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, one of the most difficult transitions of my life was right when I graduated from college. I graduated from A&M in 2011 and moved out to Spring, Texas to start my job. And I think the reason why the transition was so difficult is because my college experience 
was so incredible, right? Uh, a research group just did a study on the happiest campuses in America. Uh, there was a couple Texas schools on there. Uh, UT came in at number nine. Uh, so not bad, right? Uh, the school I went to, Texas A&M, came in at number one, okay? Uh, and that was largely my experience, right? Uh, it was an incredibly happy time. I had great friends, a sense of purpose as I walked with them and with the Lord in ministry. I enjoyed uh, my time there. I had a lot of fun with those guys. And on top of that, towards the end of my college career, I had an incredible job lined up with a ministry that I was looking forward to going and serving with and, and honoring the Lord and walking with God. And I was filled with a sense of direction and adventure and purpose, Right? only to get to Spring, Texas, and sort of have the rug pulled out from under me, right? I don't know if you've ever been to Spring. Not a lot going on there, right? Uh, For someone who's in their 20s and single, right? Uh, Add to all of that, I was was fired up at the end of my college experience because I had finally gotten uh, a date with this girl that I had been crushing on for months, right? And so it just felt like at that point that my life was on the way up, right? (laughs) Only to go on that date. Uh, And... uh, by the end of it, she didn't let me pay, which if you don't know is code for it. This didn't go so well, but thanks for trying, right? Uh, and that was sort of the beginning of the end. I remember I got to spring and I started in a ministry and I expected it to take off and skyrocket and it didn't, right? I experienced these incredible movements of God that had been around for decades at A&M and just expected that mine would be that way too. And it wasn't, right? And it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And it was a lot more trying on my soul than I thought it was going to be. And about five months in, it was me and like two of my closest friends, right? Uh, I hadn't grown at all. I wasn't a ministry. I wasn't even a small group, right? Uh, and so I remember I would, I would go out and I would sit in our children's portable to prepare for the night and kind of sneak away and pray and that sort of thing. And I remember being out there and like surrounded by stuffed animals and like talking monkeys that would scare the mess out of me just every once in a while. And just taking an inventory of my life and thinking, how did I land here? Like, how did I get here? And I just took an inventory of my life and I was like, ministry isn't taking off like I thought it was going to. I have no meaningful friendships within a hundred miles of me, right? Uh, I have tens of thousands of dollars of debt to pay off that incredibly happy experience that I just made it through. And at a time in my life when I thought maybe I would finally be settling down to meet the one, there was no, to my knowledge, no single women in Spring, Texas, right? That was right when single ladies came out and it just felt like Beyonce was taunting me. I said, no single lady. She's never been to Spring, right? Uh, and on top of all that, I lived with my grandparents, okay? Uh, so what am I going to do? Come on in. These are my roommates. That's Paul. He's 70. And um, I want to play bingo. Like, what are we going to do, right? Uh, and it was an incredibly difficult transition. And, and I learned something during that season of my life, and that was this, that transitions inherently are difficult. Transitions are tough, right? For those of you that just graduated from college or are in college, you're starting to learn this from the first, for the first time as you go from high school student to college student or college student to getting a job. And you need to know something, young adult. For the next 10 years of your life, the next decade of your life is going to be the most transitional season that you ever go through, right? If there's anything that I learned as a young adult pastor, it's that uh, we're in constant transition, constantly passing through from one thing to the next, right? So when we're in college, we're just passing through college to get a job. When we get our first job, that's not really the job that we want to build our career on, so we're just passing through that to get to our career building job. Uh, Most young adults are single trying to pass through that to go on to marriage, right? Uh, Some of you just want to finally transition out of your parents' house, right? And the parents in the room are like, thank I'm so glad we came to church this morning. Amen. Get them a job, Jesus, right? Get them out, right? Uh, And we're just always passing through, right? Uh, And transitions are difficult. Uh, I think that sense that we live in a state of transition sort of wanes a little bit when we go on, settle down, and have kids because we're in sort of a similar season for about two decades. takes anywhere between 18 to 
I don't know, 25 years to get him out of the house. Uh, and we just sort of settle into that. But then that transition comes. And those of you that have been through that recently can speak to that, the, um, the weight of that transition in your home and in your soul. And it, I don't know if you know this, but after that one, you have another couple of decades maybe. And then there's another big transition coming up, right? And if there's anything that I've noticed about transitions, it's that they, they give us a sense of instability, right? Uh, we have this nagging sense that we haven't yet arrived. We're not quite where we need to be. And we all go through dark times, difficult times. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we have it all streamlined and we're going through these transitions. It still feels like, like we don't quite have our sea legs yet. Our balance feels off, right? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give us a North Star, something that we can fix our eyes on that's singular, that's unchanging, so when the world feels unstable around us, we can look at that and be filled with a sense of direction. Sort of like a sailor at sea, when the waves rise around him and the storm comes rushing in, he knows that there is a star up in the heavens that will never change, will never shift, will never move, so no matter what happens, I can fix my eyes on that, and when the storm blows through, I sail on with a sense of purpose, direction, adventure, right? And so that's what I want to do. I want to give you a North Star. Uh, Because the young adults in this room are in a perfect position to understand what we all need to know. That life is just one major transition. All of life is just one major transition. We're all passing through here on our way to something else. That's exactly what Jesus had in mind in the passage that we just read. Uh, When he said, which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his span of life? If you cannot do such a little thing even as this, why do you worry about the rest? What's he saying? By worrying, you can't add any time to your life here. And then he says, if you can't even do a little thing like that, why are you stressed about food and clothes? Which, pause for a second, I think it's interesting that Jesus talks about the manipulation of the space-time continuum as a little thing, but if you're God, I guess you can do that, right? Uh, But what's he trying to say? He's trying to communicate something to us, that your time here is fixed and it's short. That reality that you feel inside of you that there's a clock ticking down and your time here is limited is right. And it's true, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And one of Jesus' followers, James, will pick up on this, and he'll write about it in James 1, 27, and he'll say, your life is like a vapor. That's all it is. He, the, the imagery that he's using literally is like a puff of smoke or a mist passing through a light that's gone. That's your life. Your time here is short. One day soon, eternity is going to stretch out before you. And when that day comes, only one thing is going to matter. It's the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so what's our North Star? What do we focus on this morning that gives us a sense of stability? It's the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now what's stabilizing about that? Why is the kingdom of God stabilizing? For this reason. Because it's the one thing on this earth that truly satisfies, and it's the only thing that goes on forever. It's the only thing in your life that's permanent. Uh, and so what does that mean? What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? What am I talking about? Because a lot of you in this room are, are young adults and you're just trying to figure out what to do on the weekend or what classes to take or what to do with my job, right? Or trying to find a spouse. And others of you are past that stage of life and you're just trying to figure out how to keep your job and be a good spouse and pay the bills and raise a family. And you're like, what do either of these things have to do with the kingdom of God? Like, how does this apply to me at all? Uh, I think I learned the answer to this question most acutely my senior year at A&M. A group of friends and I decided it was our last spring break, and so we wanted to do something awesome. Uh, we wanted to do something fun, and we wanted to do something significant for the Lord. Uh, and so we thought of a couple of friends that we had had from a few years before who went backpacking through Europe uh, that, were doing, that were in Europe at the time, that were doing incredible things 
for the Lord. And their story really simply is they went backpacking through Europe, and as they went through, they stayed at hostels. And if you don't know what a hostel is, it's just a sort of low-dollar hotel, maybe $10 a night to stay, usually a big open room with a bunch of beds and that sort of thing. And you get all manner of humanity gathered together in that place, all kinds of people, right? Uh, And contrary to our sort of romanticized, overly optimistic view of human nature, what they found in those places was incredible weighty darkness when they intersected with these people of all manners, manner of life. And some of the things that they saw in that place broke their hearts. The dark things, the difficult things, the relational strains that they encountered. And so they decided, you know what, if, if all that's passing through those, that's an incredible opportunity to intersect darkness with light. So they went to start a hostel in the name of Jesus so they could share the gospel with those who came through. Incredible. And they did it. It was unreal, right? And so we were thinking about them and we we're like, let's just go join them. Let's go do what they're doing. And they landed in Prague, Czech Republic. And so we packed up and we went and did that for our spring break. And they told us, yeah, come, we need encouragement. We need support because it's not easy. Uh, Prague is less than, I'm sorry, the Czech Republic is less than 1% Christian, uh, and it's a very depressed culture. It's eerie, right? Um, They said that they don't want anything to do with the gospel, and here's why. Because they've heard the proclamation of a new kingdom and a good king before, and they don't want anything to do with it. They sat under 10 years of Hitler, and their culture was ravished by it. They sat under 40 years of Stalin and communism, and they don't want anything to do with a new king and his good reign, right? They, They truly don't. The less than 1% Christian. And so they said, come, it's going to be fun, but it's going to be difficult. We need encouragement. Come be a part of this. So we did. I'll never forget, I think it was the second night that we were there. We were sitting down with uh, our two friends and then their missionary buddies that were there too. And then some of the local church people that were there that they were partnering with. And uh, we were going to sit down and just worship with them and pray with them and encourage them and speak life into them. And, you know, and, and that's kind of why we were there. And I'll never forget, one of the guys came over to me. I was one of the older guys in the trip. And he said, hey, you and David, the youngest guy on the trip, are going to go out and you're going to share the gospel with some college students in the old communist block. And uh, I don't know about you, but evangelism in that way, sharing the gospel one-on-one terrifies me, right? Uh, And so when he said that, my first thought was, who is Scott? And then my second thought was, um, (laughs) just some red flags sort of went off when he said the word communist block. I was like, I don't know about this, right? Uh, But it became apparent to me really quickly Uh, that we were going. I didn't really have a choice in it. We were leaving, okay? Uh, And so I get into the elevator. I follow Scott, this man that I'd never met before, into the elevator, and he gives me just a real quick spiel of what we're about to do. He's like, hey, I have a relationship formed with these guys. They're they're very poor. They live in free government housing, and it's going to look like squalor to you. It's the old sort of communist buildings, and they don't have cell phones, but what what we do is we meet once uh, every couple of weeks on a certain night of the week at a certain time as they pass through. They switch trains. They stand there. They wait for me. If I'm there, I go with them. If not, then they just assume that I'm not coming and I see them next time. And we're a little bit late because I had to come get you monkey. So let's go. Took off into the night. And we're like, okay. So we run, we jog after him and we're jogging through this strange city in a dark street and we're following this man that we'd never met. And then he disappears underground. And we're like, okay, here we go. Right. Uh, and we get onto this train and I'll never forget this. And I'm not making any of this up. I promise I wouldn't lie to you from the stage. Uh, we were sitting there, maybe, maybe out there. Uh, we were sitting there and, uh, we were trying to catch our breath, and uh, he looked at us, and no joke, he said, there are some people that don't want us here. You won't recognize them. I will. And so if I get up and move, follow me. I'm not going to cue you. Just follow me. And we are like, what? <laughs> and we just kind of looked at each other like, either this man is Liam Neeson, or we're going to need Liam Neeson to get us out of this mess really soon, right? 
And he went on to explain to us that these group of college students that he was meeting with were terrified of Christianity, right? It's so weird to them. It's so outlandish. Like for them to join Christianity would be like joining a cult, like joining Charles Manson's family. You'd be like, no thanks, right? It just, it came off as weird. So they even told him, you're not allowed to talk to us about Jesus more than once every couple of months. That's all you get. You're not allowed to bring it up. We don't want to hear about it. You're cool. You can hang out with us, but we don't want to hear about it, right? So he told us that and he said, so for us to get to the gospel is going to be a miracle. So let's pray for that. And so we did, and we prayed, and we sat there, and we connected with them in their dorm room. We had this incredible experience. We invited them on a little trip we were going. They couldn't afford it. Some of the people from our trip paid for their journey. They had no category for that, for just for giving them stuff for, for free and letting them come with us. They'd never seen anything like that. As we interacted with each other in love, they'd never seen anything like that. And they were like, what is that? And we said, that's Jesus, right? And we had this incredible opportunity to share with them the gospel, and that story unfolded in ways I don't have time to go into. But our night didn't end there. On our way home, we didn't take the train back. We walked back through Prague, and and Scott, being Scott, took us through the red light district. And he said, I want you to meet some people that I've gotten to know, and we're going to tell them about Jesus. And I was like, okay. Uh, and so we're walking through, and I don't have time to go into the details of it, but just by the end of the night, my left hand was holding Scott's hand, and my right hand in this little circle was holding the hand of a six-foot-five pimp from Nigeria, praying for him to come to know the Lord and repent of his sin. I don't think he was there yet, but he was willing to pray with us. And it was like, what is happening? Where are we? Who is this man, right? And the next night, I think we, we decided to go out and we wanted to just kind of see what Prague was like. So we went to this little place and we were kind of dancing in this little like club in Prague. And we have our little Christian circle, just kind of, you know, keeping it home, having a little Christian moment in the circle. And uh, I'll never forget Scott was there and he had all these friends and relationships that he'd been forming. So he'd be out there and he'd dance these people into our circle and he'd be like, hey, meet my friends. And we'd be like, hi. And he'd leave and he'd be like, tell them about Jesus, right? And then that was just kind of Scott, right? And we're like, who is this guy? What does he do, right? What is this man's secret. And so later on in the trip, I was excited because David and I got to sit down and have coffee with him. And I wanted to know, like, what do you do? Like, pour some Holy Spirit in your, in your Jamba Juice in the morning. Like, what, what do you do? And I remember I sat down with him for coffee, and I was totally underwhelmed. And we talked about what it was like to have a job and pay bills in Prague and have a family. And, and that is not what I was looking for. And uh, then I had this thought. This guy is just like me. He's not a superhero. He's not exceptional. He's just earnest. He just believes the things that we profess, right? He understood that our time here is short. Everything is shifting. All of life is one major transition. And so what was he about? He was about the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he paid bills. He thought about those things. He worked hard, but he didn't worry about them. He didn't worry about it, right? I think it's so interesting that Jesus, when he was talking to his original audience, he went right after the two things that would have concerned them most. Would they have food to eat the next day? And would they have clothes to put on their backs and the backs of their family? And he says, don't worry about these things. He didn't even, he didn't even name them at that point. He just gives them kind of a throwaway phrase, just these things, right? He's like, don't worry about it. Your father knows that you need him. Your father knows. He's going to give you those things. Don't worry about them. Rather, let, let the the base of your emotion and the brunt of your passion be focused on the kingdom of God. Work for those things. Think about those things, but don't worry about it. Think about the kingdom. Focus on the kingdom, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. What's your North Star? What do we focus on as the world shifts around us and change that gives us a sense of stability, adventure, and purpose? It's the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so for you, the things that you fixate on, think about, constantly mull over in your mind, obsess over tirelessly every day. Jesus is saying, don't worry about these things. Think about them. Go to work for them. Provide for your family, but don't worry about it. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that is our North Star. And so if that's what we're meant to do, if we're meant to be people that seek the kingdom of God, what does that look like? What does it look like to seek the kingdom of God? Two things. The first thing I think we need to recognize this morning, and the first is the most important. The first thing we need to recognize is if there's a kingdom, then there's a king. All right? If there's a kingdom, then there's a king. See, when Jesus showed up on the scene, Jesus didn't show up as, a, as just a teacher of morality. Jesus didn't show up as just a parenthetical, hypothetical Lord and Savior. Jesus showed up as the ultimate king of the universe. And so what do we know about Jesus? He was the transformational king. He was the ultimate king. He's the, the paradoxical king. And he's the king that changed the scope of human history unlike anyone else has ever done, right? When Jesus showed up on the scene, he started to reverse things, dark things, hard things that were true of people, things that are inside of you that you hate about yourself, that you wish weren't there. Jesus would show up and say, I'm reversing that. That's not true of you anymore. I'm casting that out. He would show up to sick people and he'd say, you're not sick anymore. He would show up to people that were plagued by spiritual darkness and he would say, that's not true of you. I cast that out of you. He would show up to people that had felt ostracized and isolated and alone. And he would say, come into me, to the family of God, and be accepted, be loved. And so Jesus showed up on the scene, and he started reversing things, dark things, hard things. And so at first glance at Jesus' ministry, it looks like his ministry is a ministry of reversal. But upon closer inspection of Jesus' ministry, we see that his ministry wasn't a ministry of reversal. It was a ministry of restoration. Restoration. If you follow the themes, you look at Jesus' ministry from the context of Genesis to Revelation from the beginning to the end, you see that what Jesus is doing very simply is he's imitating the Father. He's making things like they were in the beginning, in the garden, when man walked with God. And he's making them like they'll be again in the culmination. And so the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, he shows up to restore, to make new, to usher in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love. And so if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me say this. The ultimate thing that Jesus came to restore is his rightful place as king. The ultimate thing that Jesus came to restore was not our health, not our happiness, not our joy, though those things can and will be true if you're in Christ. The ultimate thing that Jesus came to restore was his rightful place as king. His rightful place as king. Uh, And so if we're spiritually honest in this room today, every single one of us has walked away from God and assumed the sole leadership position of our little universe. Every one of us has said, no thank you to God, to you and to your rule. I'll take me and my rule. I'll run this. And when we do that, we inherently become selfish people. This is the essence of sin, lawlessness. We have broken the law of God as king and assumed the sole leadership position of our little world. I'm the most important. And for me to stand a little taller, I'll cut you down. And for me to get ahead, I'll push you back. And as we do that, we leave in our wake sin and destruction and chaos. That's true of us, right? Read a history book. Read the news. And so what God says is, your sin is, is, is bigger than you think. It's, it's treason. It's treason. You have said no to the true king, and you've said, I'll be king. I'll be queen. I'll be the one that rules my universe. And he says, the penalty for treason is death. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. That's what you bought with your treason. And I just want to camp here for just a second because I think there's a lot of pushback in our culture about sin. And I just want to say something. If you're someone in the room and you say, I don't really understand that. I don't really even see that much wrong with me. What is so big of a deal? I just want to say, first of all, just simply, we're all guilty. We're all sinners. Um, And if it helps, if this sentence helps, think about it this way. Those people that you despise, uh, 
for whatever reason, because you see them so clearly inflict harm on yourself or injustice on this world around you, and you say, I hate that. I hate it when they do that, and they should pay. That's wrong. I hate that. Oftentimes, the people that we despise are blind to their own sin. And so which is more likely, that you yourself are without sin or that you too are blind to it? Second thing I want to say about that is that the the punishment for the offense is in proportion to the status of the one who's offended, okay? So if you go to work and you cuss out one of your coworkers, you had a bad day, what's the consequence? Maybe a little tension in the workplace. If you go to work and you cuss out your boss because you've had a bad day, what's the consequence, right? Everyone's going to be like, why, why that guy? Why her? That was the bo- You're fired, right? It's over. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have done it. If you come up here, you don't like what I'm saying, maybe you don't like my shirt or something, and you decide I'm going to take that guy out and you try to form tackle me, what's going to happen? We have some security around here. Met him earlier. He looks like he's in the CIA. He might escort you out and maybe rough you up a little bit. I don't know, depending on how well we connected. If you, um, if you go into the White House and you try to form tackle the President of the United States of America, consequences are going to be a little bigger, right? Uh, our treason was against the majesty in the heavens. Against the majesty in the heavens. Ultimate status. Ultimate holiness. Ultimate hierarchy. And the punishment for the offense is in proportion to the status of the one offended. And so by this, we know love. That even when we were enemies, he laid down his life for us. By this we know love. Even when we were the perpetrators, when we were the offenders, when we were the treasonous, he said, if the punishment for your sin is death, then I'll take death on myself. I'll move that out of the way and I will bear the punishment for your sin. And that's the beauty of the cross of Jesus. That there is justice for the offense. God says, I'll pay it for you. You don't have to pay it. You can't pay it. I'll do it for you. But there is grace for the offender. At the cross of Jesus, we have justice for the offense and grace for the offender. And what what happens in that moment when we accept Jesus' payment for our sin and we say, yes, Jesus, you are the king of the universe, not me. What happens is our equilibrium is restored, right? We get our sea legs. Our balance is on because everything is right in the universe. All is as it was meant to be. We look to him as king and we say, not only is he ultimate king of the universe, the most powerful, the most glorious, the most majestic, but he's my king and he loves me. He came for me. He laid down his life for me. He moved heaven and earth to get to me and that's my king. I'm seeking him and the rest of it falls into place. And that's Christianity. That's Christianity. Not be a good person. If you're here this morning and you thought I'd stop doing this and don't do that, that's not it. He'll give you a change of heart, but that's not where it starts. It starts with him as king, right? And so we seek first the king. And so if the first thing we need to know about the kingdom of God and seeking it is that there's a king and his name is Jesus, the second thing we need to know and be about is is to be about the king's business, right? To be about the king's business. And this is the beauty of it, okay? Jesus is bringing a kingdom of love, of love. Do you understand how beautiful that is? You understand how amazing that is? That the most important thing to him is the very best thing for us. He's bringing a kingdom of love, right? And so the gospel writer John will, to his particular flock, say, by this we know love, and I quoted this a second ago, that he laid down his life for us. And then he continues, and he says, and so we ought to lay down our lives for each other. But if anyone has the world's goods sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, 
Let us not love and in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And if you look at Jesus and you say, the number one thing to me, the most important thing in the universe is the glory of God. How is God most glorified? When we love each other, right? Jesus will say something similar. Paul will say something similar. Paul will say all the law, all the prophets, all the commandments, basically the entire summary of this book can be filled up in one word. Love. It's Galatians 5.14. Jesus will say it. Someone will come to him and he'll say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the best thing I can do? Jesus will say the greatest commandment is that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Basically with everything you've got and all that's in you, love the Lord. It's the best thing for you. But the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He asked for one and he got two. He says, you can't separate these things. If you truly love God, you'll truly love his kids, right? You can't love a parent and say, yeah, you're cool. I just hate your children, right? That's not how it works. Jesus says, if you truly love me, you'll love my people. Love one another, right? Um, and this is beautiful. And, and this doesn't mean that we agree with everything that everybody does. We don't bow to our culture. We recognize that all people, everybody, will one day bow to our king. But it does mean that we love them and that we're kind to them. And we don't come on a high horse. We're all sinners, we come lowly and we say, let me serve you. Jesus laid down his life for us, for his enemies. That's our example. We come humble. We come lowly. Beautiful example of this. Beautiful example. Uh, I read an article in the USA Today uh, newspaper just a couple of days ago. I'm going to read to you a portion of it. Um, it starts off a little rough. When Christians are in the news, it's usually because they've done something wrong. That they're on the wrong side of something or cheated on their wife or worse what the world rarely gets to see is the powerful grace that flows from a deep faith predicated on the belief that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. USA Today. The family members of those slain at Charleston Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church bore witness to this central tenet of the Christian faith last week as the nation gasped in awe. I forgive you. I forgive you, one after another told the stone-faced and unrepentant alleged killer Dylan Roof at his bond hearing. And it's true, you can go online and watch this video on the USA Today website. You hear the sobs of the family members whose lives were forever changed, who were deeply wounded, and say that to him. What you did was wrong. What you did was hurtful. And there will be justice for it, but, but hear us say there is grace for the offender. I say, we forgive you. We love you. We want you to have life. And the nation gasped in awe. This is what the world needs. This is where your soul comes to life. This is what we were made for, that we were redeemed to redeem. We were blessed to be a blessing. We were loved to love, right? I had a mentor in college that explained it to us this way. He said, think about it like this. The gospel writer John, when he writes his particular flock, he calls them beloved over and over again. Beloved, beloved. You're the loved ones. That's what that means. And at the beginning of that book, he says, beloved, love. Hey, loved ones, love. It's the most natural thing you can do, right? He said it'd be like looking at a quarterback and saying, hey, quarterback, yeah, throw, okay, right? Hey, hungry guy, eat, right? Hey, loved one, love, love. It's the most natural thing you can do. Jesus came to restore all things. He came to restore his rightful place as king, and he came to usher in a kingdom of love, right? Um, and so as we transition through this world, 
as everything shifts and changes around us and we feel the instability of transitions and of difficult times, we fix our eyes on this one North Star and the King Jesus. And I remember when this played out uh, for, for me, I was a, a young adult pastor locally and um, we recognized this acutely. There was a guy named uh, John Pennington who was one of my best friends. He was a grad student at Rice, an engineer. He's an engineer now and he taught me most of this, what I'm teaching you. And, and we saw something change in our, our ministry. We radically altered the way we did small groups. We did the normal things that small groups did. We met every other week, and we read the Bible, and we talked about our feelings and whatever. Uh, But then every other week, we would go out, and we would seek to be a blessing. We said, we've been redeemed. We want to see our city redeemed. We want to see in our wake not sin and destruction and chaos. We want to see in our wake worshipers, lovers of Jesus and of people. And so we would go out, and one of our groups would meet with the same group of homeless people every single week. Same group. We knew their names, sat down with them. They'd buy them food, have dinner with them, and just talk to them and love them and just say, you're valuable. Someone cares about you, and we care about you. The Lord cares about you, right? Another group would go, and they would sit with, uh, with old folks in an assisted living center every other week. Or actually, they went every single week. They would sit with these people, and they would hold the hands of these sweet, dignified people who had been forgotten, and a lot of them abandoned by their families, and just say, you're loved. You know that? Someone cares about you. I care about you. And they would walk these sweet people to the door of death and be there with them for that. We saw people come to know the Lord then. Unbelievable that the me generation would give their time that way. Other group, we had an anti-human trafficking group. Other groups that would go and they would seek to intersect with people that had felt ostracized by the church. They would go and they'd play ultimate frisbee and invite people into that and say, come be a part of our group. They would love them and then funnel them into the church. And that's just what we did. That's just how we did it. And we saw incredible things. And I remember one time this playing out in a really cool way. My buddy John, who became my roommate, we moved in, several other guys, into one house where we could kind of um, save on rent and, you know, grow together in the Lord. And I remember he called me one morning, one Sunday morning, as I was on staff at this church, and he said, hey, would you mind if Bill came and showered at our house so we can go to church? And just being real honest with you, my first thought was our TV and our safety and the valuable things that we had. My second thought uh, was Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast that I've chosen for you, my people, from God? He says, is this not the attitude that I've chosen, that you would undo the straps of the yoke, that you would set the prisoner free, that you would feed the hungry and invite the homeless poor into your house? And so I said, yeah, yeah. So he came, and I remember John called and he said, hey, we're here. And I walked out to the atrium of our church and I saw Bill, our homeless friend, walking in, looking just clean and nervous as heck, right? And I walked up to him and I was like, man, I'm so glad you're here. It's good to see you. Uh, Gave him a hug and he just, the whole time, his eyes were down and looking at his feet. And and he said, you know, I hadn't been at church in 30 years and I honestly just want to sprint out of that door right now. And I was like, whoa, whoa, stay here, right? And he kept repeating the phrase, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I shouldn't be here. And uh, I said to him, Bill, we're all in that boat. None of us deserve to be in the presence of God. We're all sinners. Come and join us. And so he came in, and I remember we sat in the first song, and I think it was the whole thing was weird for him. It was maybe too loud or whatever. And he was sitting there, and his hands were in his pocket, and he was kind of fidgety. And I'll never forget, though, the second song came on. It was around Christmas time. It was Advent season, and it was a song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the old hymn. And... um, uh, I was kind of watching them, which is probably awkward for him, but I remember when that, when that song came in, it's the, the first verse says, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. 
And as that phrase, God and sinners, reconciled, entered into his heart, it was like something changed. Dude looked up and started belting the rest of the song uncomfortably loud, right? I was like, whoa, calm down, Bill, right? But something emotional happened in his heart. And that was a kingdom moment that we were no longer in that place, homeless and affluent. We were no longer dirty and clean. We were no longer rich and poor. We were all together in that place, God and sinners reconciled, right? That's the beauty of that. And this isn't the point of the story, but it's kind of cool. But the rest of that story plays on. I remember Bill would call my buddy John all the time from the streets. He had my, my friend's cell phone and they would, John would just be praying for him, just part of his normal life. And I remember one time Bill called John and, and Bill said to him, uh, John, you're never going to believe this. I'm going to jail. And he was so excited, right? Uh, I think part of that was because it was winter and he wanted to get off the streets. But part of it is he had had an outstanding warrant for his arrest for about 10 years that he didn't serve and didn't want to serve. But he said, you know what? I, I want to turn myself in so I can get a driver's license so I can get a job. And he did. And he got a job. And he got a little house. And Bill started walking with Jesus and loving him. It was amazing transformation. Unbelievable. And we didn't have like a 12-step program to get the homeless people off the streets. We just sacrificially stepped into their world and loved them. Said someone cares for you. You're valuable. You're a valuable human being. And that was more important than anything else we could have done with our time. And yes, they were engineers, they were salesmen, they were families, they were married, they had kids, but they gave of themselves and they gave of them li- their lives and they stepped out. And that's one thing that I love about this church. If you're someone who wants to step into a life like that and pursue Jesus in that way, this church is all about that. Find out what they're doing and get involved, get plugged in. Uh, and that's our North Star. So as the world shifts around us, as the world changes and moves and uh, everything feels unstable, we fix our eyes on that singular, unchanging reality in the universe and we sail on with a sense of purpose, direction, and adventure. Uh, let's pray together. Well, Lord, I'm grateful for an opportunity for, for us to just gather as a family, as the family of God, and think deeply about you and have a moment where we can interact with you. And God, I just want to pray for this moment that we have coming up as uh, the band comes back out and we start to worship. God, I, I just pray that um, this moment would be an opportunity for us to meet with you, to, to gaze into your face and for us to do business with you. And so if you're someone in this room who, who doesn't know the Lord and you've been to church your whole life, but you thought Christianity was about being a good person, hear me say it's not. It's not. It's about a king who loves you. It's about a king who moved heaven and earth to get to you, who laid down his life for you to grab you just as you are. And so if you've never talked to him and dealt with him and said anything honest to him, I would encourage you to do that. Bring your questions, bring your doubts, um, and gaze at the cross. See what it means for you. See the abundance of love there for you. Uh, And if you're someone in this room that knows him, um, I just encourage you to, to deal honestly with him and just confess to him where your heart's been off and where you've been distant and, um, and then just engage him in conversation. Uh, talk to him and say, God, if you really are moving in this way, if you really are king of the universe and you're making a difference and we can be redeemers and blessers of this world and our city can change around us, God, I want to be a part of that. Make me a part of that. Lead me in that, God. Help me to jump into this family and be surrounded by this family of believers that will love me, that will be kind to me, that will speak life in me, that will serve me humbly, right? And if you're a regular member of this church, I just want to encourage you, be that person in Christ. Follow his lead on that. Love those people. Welcome them in. Be kind to them and your families and your friends. Uh, This is what the world needs. This is where the world gasps 
in awe. Unbelievable. And so, Father, I just pray that over this congregation this morning and ask that we would daily uh, seek you in your kingdom and just trust that all these other things will be added to us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.